Hello and welcome to LPO Offstage. I'm Yolanda Brown and this is the podcast that provides an insight into classical music and a whole lot more. Today we're trying something a bit different. The LPO made a call out to their followers on Instagram, seeing what they would like to ask the LPO's principal conductor, Ed Gardner. And here he is, ready to answer them. Welcome back, Ed. And are you ready for a quick fire musical grilling Let's see what the questions are, but I, as ready as I can be, I think. Sounds good. Well, first question, what would you have done if you had not been a conductor? I mean, there were various things when I was growing up that appealed to me. I mean, my first thing, I thought I'd be a cathedral organist. I was obsessed with the sound of the organ when I was a, a young kid. And I think my parents sometimes wish I'd done that. I mean, they thought that was a beautiful thing. And then it was always really music. So I can't really think outside it. At some point... In my uh, late teens, early 20s, I, I thought about being a piano accompanist for singers. Yeah. You know, accompanying for song was a huge thing that gave me enjoyment when I was, when I was young. And uh, in some ways, I still wish I, could, I had time for part of that because it's such a beautiful chamber, type of chamber music and text-inflected music, which I really loved. But um, that's about it. I, you know, I'd, I'd love to tell you I'd be a, like an airline pilot or something, but I've got, I don't have any, I really don't have any technical ability outside of what I do. No, no, it's good. Well, it means you're doing what you love, which is fantastic. There is a question here that says, what instruments do you play as well as singing and conducting, of course? When I was a kid, I played clarinet, piano and organ. And I sang a lot in choirs. That was a big thing. But piano was my main instrument when I was growing up and, and still is to a certain extent now. How much do you get to play now? Very little. I mean, I sometimes learn scores at the piano and go through things with singers at the piano, but way too little. And I, one of my big regrets is I didn't keep it going, you know, fundamentally to be able to keep playing. But um, I didn't and, and I do it just for my own pleasure. Now, how do you personally prepare before going on stage? The bit that no one gets to see. Yeah. Uh, ooh, OK, well, I'm quite scatty, so I often... I did a prom a few years ago where I took my shoes out of my bag at 25 past seven and realised I had two left shoes, which no! I had to go on for the first time. So, I, I mean, I'm maybe not the person to ask this. Did this, you wear uh, them on? Yeah, I did. Both? Yeah, because no one was, to, no one was there to help me. No one so, wants, yeah. And no one wants you in socks, yeah. Yeah, and the orchestra bit by bit realised and started giggling. It's, it wasn't one of the great nights of my life. But, but in all seriousness, I, on that, I trust my subconscious brain more and more. So, you know, when I started out, I'd be flicking through scores like over and over again. And actually nothing's going in. So I try and keep away from the idea of performance until the last minute. I'll try and sleep in the afternoon because that's an amazing reset of your day. You know, it, it feels like there's a freshness about your evening. But I get ready as quarter past seven and I try and leave it as late as possible so that I'm just fresh in the performance. I, there's no kind of meditation. It's just all about keeping away from it in your conscious brain for as long as possible and then engaging with it. Because you've done the work, you know, you've done the work with the orchestra and you have to try, there's a point where you have to trust yourself. Do you eat before going on stage? We've got many a LPO offstage podcast episodes where people talk about, you know, the banana or not being able to eat before. Do you eat before? Uh, yeah, it's, it's complex that because you don't feel, when adrenaline's running through, you really don't feel like it. But bananas are, are God's fruit for, for us, you know, <laughs> conductors and tennis players, all musicians, because you really, it's that slow burn. It calms you, the potassium calms you, and it's got this slow burn energy, which is what you need. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was conducting a six hour opera. 
And those are different. You need to, you really need to plan for those. So I try, for something like that, I would eat pasta about four hours before and mm. then a kind of a whole tree of bananas during the breaks. I am going to do an episode, at least a highlight episode on bananas. I cannot tell you how many times that banana has been talked about on this podcast. But it, it, <laughs> I bet you've spoken to a lot of musicians about what they eat because it's really important. You need to be have enough energy to be focused, but you don't want to feel kind of overwhelmed by food. It's, it's, a, it's an art knowing what to do with all that. And I think you've already answered this question, but you might have another one. What's been your most embarrassing moment as a conductor? You're there on your own. I mean, I could write a book about those. I mean, two left shoes at the proms. I love that. Tripping over on the way to the podium at the Met in New York. No. That was pretty good. Uh, not face down flat. Not face down flat. Flies open. Every conductor's have a, have a flight on their trousers open story. They can keep coming. There's no one. Thank you very much for indulging me with that. Well, some people really want to know about your training and how you got into what you're doing now. So tell us more about your training journey, especially the years at the Royal Academy of Music. So I started very young going into cathedral choirs and singing every day in Gloucester Cathedral, this extraordinary building for, for a couple of hours with all my friends. And my parents put me into it because they were interested in music. They weren't musicians. They aren't musicians, but they saw what an extraordinary education it gave you and discipline and the idea of teamwork and, uh, and a free private education. They wouldn't have been able to afford any private school. So, so I did that from the age of seven till 13 and then went on to music scholarships in school at a university. And then finally, the, as you say, at the Royal Academy of Music, which is still, it's really my education home. I think it's one of the most beautiful, well-run, well-thought-about music institutions in the world. And I, I still keep a very strong relationship with them. Now, this is a, a fantastic question that's come through. A questioner says that they've often read about your exposure to music through the choir as a boy, which you've shared with us here, but wonders how much of your talent is down to inherited genes or very earlier exposure to music? So I guess it's a nature versus nurture question with regards to your musical ability. Do you think that you inherited your talent and love of music from your parents and is it the case with your siblings? Are they equally musical? We all had the same early route through music, my brother and my sister too. But I would say what I inherited from my parents was the idea that music could be important. And music was something in, in life that we could use for our own good and for our own enjoyment. But they weren't musicians. My dad sang in an amateur way. For me, doing it from that age is an extraordinary gift to give a child because you're you're performing extent, you know, ostensibly for the glory of God. But in fact, what you're doing is you're performing at a professional level with kids of your age and adults from the age of seven. And you get a taste for what's, what's important in music performance and how to make music work. And that was one of my biggest gifts in my life, to have that from such an early age. I like that. A score for music education as well, you know. That exposure really lets you discover yourself and find out what you like and what you don't like. Some questions now about your time at the LPO. What's been your LPO highlight so far? I know there's so much to come, but so far. It's very hard to put it into one. I mean, touring with the orchestra is a wonderful thing. It's really spectacular. And we get the chance to go to the great halls of Europe to packed houses and, and really relish what the orchestra is and the tradition of the orchestra. You go there and you feel the respect for this wonderful London Philharmonic Orchestra. So many concert highlights. I think starting off 
my tenure with Tibbetts Midsummer Marriage, which was, it was just a few months after we'd all come back from COVID. So it had this feeling of regeneration and a, and a full Royal Festival Hall. That was pretty special. But also Gerontius this year at the proms with, with 6,000 people there to enjoy it. It's, um, it comes thick and fast with the LPO. That's what I would say. <laughs> now, what is the character of the LPO compared to other orchestras you've conducted? Oh, good question. It's always very hard to put these things into words, but the LPO definitely has its own characteristic. I mean, the initial thing you notice is the speed with which they assimilate what you're asking them to do and the music that they're being asked to do. They work crazy quickly. And that's not just getting the notes right. It's about finding a language for what we're doing together. That was a beautiful surprise for me when we started doing difficult projects together. But it's not that it just got better. It just became the thing so quickly. Because they spend half their time doing opera, of course, in Glyndebourne, they have this wonderful flexibility. You find that with opera orchestras because you have to go from Mozart to Wagner so quickly, night after night. You find this flexibility in the way that they work with sound, which, which I really relish. So it's that speed and flexibility that's really, really special, I think. You're doing great with these questions. I, I'm, I'm really <laughs> impressed. Now, I wonder, if, is this a hard one for you to answer? What's your favourite work to conduct? Yeah, it's impossible, actually. <laughs> uh, the glib answer is whatever's sitting in front of me that day, you know, because you really, you invest everything in the moment of a piece of music. But no, it's way too many. I mean, I could just reel off 30 straight away. There's nothing. It's very interesting last week doing Elgar's Two Symphonies and one day one of them would be your favourite and on the next day another. You're so connected emotionally to music that you can't say what's one piece of music. Not, not at all. Well, I'm going to extend this question for this uh, fan of yours and ask, has there ever been a piece of music that you just really don't get on with, but you have to conduct it? I think when you're young and you don't really know what your, fully what your tastes are, I would say, yes, that's something that I've definitely experienced. I mean, I, you know, I was asked to do some pretty left field operas when I was very young, you know, not naming. You just have to get on with it. But the beautiful thing about being, you know, in a mid-career and working at a wonderful level is you can choose what you conduct. There's no point doing something you don't believe in. And you choose the soloists you work with. So you work with great collaborators, people that trust you and you trust them. And... Uh, that's where you get to, really, because an orchestra and therefore an audience totally see through you if you don't believe in a piece of music. That's just routine and dull. So you've got to do what you believe in. So what work have you not conducted yet, either with the LPO or at all, that's at the top of your bucket list? There are quite a few of those. Uh, Mala 9 would be one for sure. I'm working my way through Wagner operas and The Ring will be coming up soon, but it'll be the first time for that. You spend your 20s and your 30s learning new music as a conductor and it's gruelling. I mean, it's real homework. It's crazy. You sit at a desk with this piece of music in silence for days and months. But one of the beauties of having done it for 20 years is that you start to repeat and you start to repeat with more experience. So actually, I look forward to repetition of repertoire as much as I would look forward to discovering a new piece because you develop so quickly as a conductor and you should develop through all your career. And that's really a big focus for me when I can repeat some of these great pieces I've done over the last decades. And have you ever, I guess it's that thing of when you're working within entertainment, sometimes it's hard to switch off. Have you ever been to a concert where you think, I just, I wish I was up there or I would have done this a bit different. Does that happen to you a lot? 
I used to uh, be music director of English National Opera, and when you're in an opera company, you go to a lot of rehearsals and, and performances for someone else. But you're insides out if you keep an attitude of I would have done this differently or whatever. I, you know, there are so many great musicians and conductors there that I really try and enjoy what's happening there on the night. And uh, I'd say the perspective for me of being in concerts is really important, or even in theatre, because when you're on the podium, you obsess about these little things that often don't travel to the audience, but the feeling of an evening or the spirit of an evening comes across so strongly above everything else, above little slips or little corners that you don't get right as a conductor. And that's, that's a wonderful, humbling reference point when you're in the audience. I'm getting a lot of advice and tips coming through your answers as well, which is good because a lot of the Instagram followers have asked for some advice. So here we go. What advice would you give to musicians thinking about becoming a conductor? Just get as lateral an education for yourselves as possible, whether it's, you know, multiple instruments, performing in multiple venues and multiple groups, you know, bands, orchestras, chamber music, just experiencing culture in its widest forms, whatever it is. So you, you, know, you understand the essence of performance and the essence of projection of music into an audience, I would say. And watch rehearsals. I found that. I had some really amazing mentors who, when I was very young, let me into rehearsals of orchestras in London, of operas at Covent Garden. And that seeing how things are put together, the nuts and bolts of a performance, is really gold dust, that actually, for a young student. Great advice. I like that. So what advice for young conductors who are trying to get work? I think you've touched on it there, but anything else of how to get work? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's it's the hardest period of a conductor's profession when they're just waiting for their first break. I mean, I think to establish relationships with more established conductors as much as you possibly can. At the LPO, we have assistance for most of our projects because it's incredibly important for us to bring through that next generation of conductors who don't get the opportunities naturally who aren't conducting week in week out so establishing contact with with people already in the profession is really important and we never mind that the thing is you think when you're young it's, it's sort of you're you're overreaching when you write a letter or a text or an email to a conductor but the worst that can happen is that they're too busy to deal with it but I always say to people, just keep trying. And, you know, there'll be a project where you can come and watch and we get to meet. And there was one day when I didn't have grey hair and I was the youngest guy on the block, you know. And it, <laughs> that's changed over these last 25 years. But it's wonderful for me to see the young musicians where the passion's really burning inside them and just experience that. As equals, it's musical equals. Experience you can gain and, and, and expertise and all those things. But you can tell if someone has that burning inside them from a pretty young age. Absolutely so. Now, a question here. It says, do you change your conducting style for different composers and their music or for different orchestras or genres? I mean, do you change yourself at all? I mean, opera, concerts, what do you do? All that stuff is pretty subconscious because you're, you're reacting to what you're hearing from an orchestra. You know, there may be an orchestra who are naturally incredibly lyric, you know, and have a sort of fat sound that sits behind the beat. And your job is to find momentum for them, to find the, the route through music. And there may be other orchestras who play completely directly, like lightning on your, on your beat, and you're trying to get them to play more melodically or with more, with more lines. So, yeah, big differences. I mean, mm. I think... What the orchestra need from you is different for different music as well. So if you're doing a piece of very modern music that no one knows, they want clarity is the, is the biggest thing that you want. And if it's a piece they know well, that they've done a lot, they want to feel fresh and they want to feel your passion for that piece. And do you think that there is an essence to your style, though? Do you have 
a style that you know what it is and that's your button? It's really hard to talk about that because that's sort of been built. I mean, of course, I trained and I, you know, I had tuition and all that, but that's built up over, it's layer upon layer over many years. And, and yeah, I'd hate it even to hear someone describe what my style was. It's just, it's like a voice. It's how you feel the music and how you feel you can communicate it to your wonderful mm. colleagues best. And what is the essential core of conducting? Physical act of interpretation or management of the orchestra? Good question. Good question. Yeah. Mm. It's both. And that's what I, I would say, honestly, I grappled with in my early career when I had jobs where I had to, you know, manage the health of an orchestra, but also be their colleague in performance, you know, waving about in midair while they <laughs> frown at me for any decisions I've made outside the rehearsal. And it's really, I always think it's like, it's got elements like being a player manager in football. They don't really exist anymore because the jobs are too hard. But, you know, yeah. managing the group, but then being the colleague, then being the, the musician with them. And what's the most important thing that you try to do as a conductor? Communication, I would say. Communication to your colleagues in the room about what, how you feel a music should sound and how it should go. And you can do that in a number of ways. That could be with an eyebrow, you know, with an orchestra that know you well or, or a gesture with your hands or the way that you talk about a piece of music. But it's that, communication. Because if you have that in the room, that's what gets out to those people in the hall. The feeling that we're all on the same page, that we're reading a piece of music in the same way. And that's thrilling when you feel that in a, in a room for an audience. And I can imagine that that sort of coming together and everybody's on the same page is a really great feeling. But have you ever had the opposite? We've uh, had an episode on LPO stage where people can say a guest conductor have, has come, not with the LPO mind, and, you know, the orchestras just get on with it. And <laughs> they could technically overrule the conductor. Have you ever felt that? Yeah, you feel resistance on repertoire in certain places. But, I mean, I work with wonderful orchestras and the resistance doesn't necessarily come from them disliking what you do or your approach. It comes from something that's fixed in their minds about the way a particular piece should go, if it's a piece that's done regularly. I've yes. had that with the LPO. I mean, I've said, yeah, I need to massage something out of your muscles to get... And they, they're fine with that. I mean, the great orchestras are flexible. I mean, that's one of their greatest gifts. And they're interested. They're intrepid in their minds. So they're interested in what you might do. So I've never, not certainly not in recent history, have I felt that it's an orchestra thinking they know better but just that you haven't quite broken the barrier of what you need to communicate to get what you want. And I like that you used the football analogy earlier. How much when you're going to work with an orchestra that you might not have worked with before or your first time working with LPO do you watch their past matches if you like you know watch their game tapes get to understand them or do you just go in fresh? I mean, with a lot of them, I'll know the history of them anyway when I go to, you know, wonderful orchestras. But no, I, I go in absolutely fresh. And great orchestras have a quality amongst themselves. And it's important that they feel that I'm bringing my ideas, but I'm listening to what they're doing as well. And it may be that you want to change what they do, but they need to really need to feel that they're being listened to because these are great artists you're in a room with and they have a particular style and they want you to engage with that too. I've Got a couple more questions from your Instagram followers, but I've got a couple of my own, if I could just uh, put them in here. Do you remember your first ever job? I guess your first ever official conducting job. And what was your feeling going in and what was your feeling coming out? Yep, it was, uh, I conducted Vorjak's Eighth Symphony in Cambridge, a university, and I had absolutely no idea. And I was white in the face and petrified from first note till last. Oh. But I enjoyed the experience, kind of. It made me want to do more, but I, yeah, it was really, uh, I had no idea. <laughs> 
And can you tell me a bit about your choice of baton? I had the wonderful honour of meeting the late, great Henry Wood's baton and learning about the paint and the balance and the cork and everything. What's your setup? Mine are made for me, actually, by someone who used to work in the Netherlands Radio Orchestra, who's sort of interested in, in those things. And for me, it's not too long. It's quite light. It's got a balance quite close to the cork. But the cork is shaped that it relaxes my hand. That's really important because ah. I have a tendency to grip if I feel nervous. But this cork sort of works against that. So it's about, you know, feeling comfortable under moments of duress. <laughs> Let's put, put it yeah. like that. But it's not a complicated thing. It's a, it's a long piece of balsa wood and some cork. But, you yeah. know, it's a very strange thing we do waving our arms in the air. And you need to feel, you need to feel as comfortable as possible with it. My final question is... What's the best piece of advice that you were given that made you the amazing conductor you are today? The biggest impact on me when I was young and not experienced was just to keep going, keep doing it. You as a saxophonist, you've sat in a room with your instrument for 10 hours a day for, for many days. And conductors don't get to do that when they're young. And you just, you, unfortunately, you do have to make your mistakes in front of other people, you know, when you're, but just keep building and keep learning from those mistakes and the experience of getting to know your instrument, which is, which takes decades. Thank you so much, Ed. It's been great speaking to you and it's great to get to know you a little bit more. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Ed Gardner for answering a huge range of questions. And I just can't stop visualising the two left shoes. Please do get in touch on social media, Twitter, Instagram. And thank you for listening. Do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage, which will be an audio tour of some of the best bits of Series 5. I can't wait. We're at the end of Series 5, but Series 6 is coming very soon. Now, for this series, we're asking you to send in your questions for the players, conductors, fans, soloists, anyone involved in the podcast, even me. So please email offstage at lpo.org.uk with your questions and we'll be answering you in Series 6.